Thank you for listening to the Calvary Church Podcast. If this ministry has been a blessing to you, would you let us know? Send an email to toledocalvary.org. We would love to hear what God is doing in your life today. Well, grab your Bibles with me, if you would, please, and turn to the book of Ruth. We started working through this short book in the Old Testament two weeks ago. Uh, We're going to kind of finish up the story today, and then we're going to look at one more week of Ruth as we've kind of looked at different characters. Last week, we looked at Ruth. This week, we're going to look at Boaz. Uh, Next message, we'll look at Naomi and kind of talk through their stories. Today, though, in case you're new to this book, let me give you a little recap of what we've seen so far in this story in the book of Ruth. It starts in Ruth chapter one with the story of a husband and wife, Elimelech and Naomi. And they live in a land called Judah in a city called Bethlehem. And there's a famine there. And it's so so severe that people have to make desperate decisions. So Elimelech takes his wife, Naomi, and their two sons, and they move to a place called Moab, which is actually kind of an enemy territory to the people of Israel, to God's people, the Jewish people. They, They go to Moab because that's a place where the famine is not hitting as severely and they think they can survive there. While they're there, we don't know exactly how long, we don't know what happened, but Elimelech dies and leaves Naomi a widow with her two sons, Malan and Killian. Those two boys are at an age where where they can marry and so they marry wives, Ruth and Orpah, and not long after they're married, at some point during this time, both of the sons die leaving Naomi as a widow with her two daughters-in-law. Sad story, right? They hear that the famine has ended, and so she makes plans to go back to Judah, back to the city of Bethlehem where she's from. And as they're in the process of going back, she says to her daughters-in-law, why are you going back with me? Look, that's, that's my people, but here is your people. You stay here with your people. Go back to the home of your mother because there you can prepare to to marry again and start life over again. And and, and you you have a future here, but you don't have a future with me. And so she pleads with them three times in the first chapter of the book of Ruth, go back to where you came from. And one of the daughters-in-law, Orpah, says, you know what, that that makes sense. My chance of finding a a husband in, in Judah are slim to none. And so I'm going to go back home. I'm going to obey my mother-in-law, and I'm going to go back home. But Ruth, the one that the book is named after, looks at her mother-in-law and says, do not ask me to go back again. And it's this famous line that she says, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be And it's this powerful moment that we see in the book of Ruth. And so they go back to Bethlehem. Once they get there, Ruth has to get a job. We read about this last week, how she goes gleaning out in the fields, which means that during harvest, she kind of collects the leftovers as she is out there trying to make um, means for them to be able to live. And last week, we studied Ruth's character. We looked at her commitment and her initiative, her humility, her vulnerability, the love that was in her. And we, we studied that last week. And we saw that while she was out in the fields, she caught the attention of the guy who owned the fields, a guy whose name was Boaz. And Boaz was very gracious and very kind to her. And there was definitely, as you read this this book, which is really a love story, you kind of get the feeling that there's might be a little chemistry between Ruth and Boaz. Did you notice that? Like they kind of have eyes for each other. And so what happens then is the next step, at some point in this story, we don't know when, Naomi, who is Ruth's mother-in-law, says, Ruth, I want to help you 
to have a home, to find a husband, to move forward. This guy, Boaz, seems to kind of have an interest, and you, you seem to kind of have an interest. So here's what I want you to do. When he's out at the threshing floor, taking care of his harvest, he'll spend the night there to protect it. While he's there, you sneak up on him. There's a key there, ladies, right? <laughs> you sneak up on him, and while he's asleep, you, you, just, you just put yourself there. And when he wakes up, well, you'll know what to do, she basically says. That's where we left off last week, where Boaz is startled in the night. He kind of moves, and there's Ruth at his feet. And let's pick up with Ruth chapter 3, verse 9. Who are you? Boaz asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer. Remember that phrase, guardian redeemer of our family. Interesting phrase that we wouldn't use. Spread the corner of your garment over me. Now that passage there is, is a physical thing that she was asking him to do, to, to cover her. But even beyond that, it was a spiritual and a symbolic thing. What she was saying was this, that that phrase spread the corner of your garment. Remember we looked at this last week. It's, it's the same words in the Psalms where it says that we hide under the shadow of God's wings. We are, we are under his covering. We're under his care. She's saying, I'm asking you to cover me, to care for me. Boaz knew it. Ruth knew it. She was saying, I'm available to be your wife if you'll marry me. Now look, this was hugely important because do you know what kind of a guy Boaz was before he married? He was ruthless. Do you get it? So some of you will get it later. That's honestly one of my proudest moments. I just. <laughs> so here's the deal. She says to him, help the person next to you if they're still. She says to him, you are a guardian redeemer. Some versions of scripture might say a, a kinsman or a kinsman redeemer. What does that mean? Because it's, it's a concept that we don't have in our, in our current time. A guardian redeemer is a term used to describe one who could respond in what was a practice called leverite marriage. Now, this is, this is new to us. We don't have this in our culture today. So let's go back to what scripture says about this idea of leverite marriage. It's in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25. Look at what it says here. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son... His widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. So did you track this? If a guy is married and he dies and there's no son, and remember a son is a big deal because you don't have retirement plans in the ancient world. The only way you're going to be cared for when you're older is if you have a son who is able to take on your property, take on your business, take on whatever, and then care for you. Your, your son is your retirement plan. If a widow has no son and her husband has died, it is the obligation, according to this passage of scripture, for a brother to her deceased husband to marry her, care for her, and to give to her a son. Kind of weird, huh? Like that's not in our culture at all. 
we look at that and go, that's strange. But not in ancient times. In ancient times, th this wasn't weird. This was grace. This was provision. Look, th there was no social security. There were no backup plans. And scripture says very clearly that God is one who defends the widow and the orphan. And so God put this provision in there in ancient times to be able to say, I'm going to make sure that the widow is taken care of. The reason it's called leverite marriage is because in Latin, the word for brother-in-law is levir, leverite. And so this was the process. It was a provision whose purpose was protection for the widow and is a case where polygamy was allowed. There's a strong sense of obligation placed on the family as well as a desire to preserve the family line. So what this means is there was, there was a prioritization. It would have start with a brother, but in Jewish practice, if there was a widow who had no son, a relative could come in that Leverite marriage process and come along and become, for that widow, the guardian redeemer, the one who would come and care for her. Now, if you don't think that was a big deal, listen to the rest of this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Look at what it says here. However, if a man does not want to marry his brother's wife, she shall go to the elders at the town gate and say, my husband's brother refuses to carry on his brother's name in Israel. He will not fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to me. Then the elders of his town shall summon him and talk to him. If he persists in saying, I don't want to marry her, his brother's widow shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, take off one of his sandals, spit in his face, yeah, and say, this is what is done to the man who will not build up his brother's family line. That man's line shall be known in Israel as the family of the unsandaled. Isn't that fascinating? Like, this is a big deal. And so Boaz, because he's a relative of Elimelech, who was Malan's father, is able to be a guardian redeemer to Ruth and Naomi. He's able to carry on the family name of Malan, and even more, he's able to care for Naomi and for Ruth. So Ruth says to him, cover me with the corner of your garment. I know there's chemistry here, Boaz. I'm willing to be your wife. Will you be the guardian redeemer? Watch what he says. Ruth chapter three, verse 10. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Isn't that significant there? Hey, look, everybody in town knows that you're a woman of noble character. You're not from around here. You're an outsider. But man, they know your character. That's what we looked at last week. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Boom, 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 boom. Just so you know, that's what you should hear there. Stay here for the night. And in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. Interesting things that, that Boaz says here. One, he starts with, this kindness is greater. 
Remember, this is a love story. He's, he's excited by this. He's like, look, the, 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 the chemistry that's here, this is a powerful thing. And he says, I will do for you all you ask. Remember this, because that's what we're going to see here in a moment from Boaz. And he says, you're a woman of noble character. However, there is one who is more closely related than I. In the process of Leverite marriage, there, was, there were levels of prioritization, right? And it kind of would be a brother and then an uncle and then a cousin. And there were, there, were, there were things that Jewish tradition had down the line. Here's why. Because in Leverite marriage, you, you would not only marry that, that widow, you would also get the property, and the property might mean that it might build up your wealth. Does that make sense? So there had to be some level of prioritization that if someone wanted to, to be able to marry someone, they, they weren't just doing it because they were trying to get rich. They were doing it to care for the family. And there were levels of, of who would have the first priority. There was someone who was more closely related to Elimelech than Boaz. Some guy who was first in line to be the guardian redeemer. So Boaz says to Ruth, look, I love you. But technically, I, I don't have the first place in line on this. He says, if he wants to, he can redeem you. I don't like how he says it in this passage. He says, if he wants to redeem you, good. That's not what I would say. I'd say, if he wants to redeem you, I'm taking him out, right? Isn't that what you would say? <laughs> like, you love this, Ruth, right? You, you want to move forward in this. This wasn't reluctance on his part. I think it was character. Why would he say that? Because if it wasn't to be Boaz, then he wanted what would be best for Naomi and Ruth. He wanted God's plan. And if it was God's plan for someone else to be the guardian redeemer and not him, he had the character to say, I want what's best for you, not what's best for me. I want what God wants, not just what I want. Have you ever been in a place where you thought your will was better than God's will? And it's something in our character to say, God, I don't get this. God, I don't fully understand this. But if this is your will, then it is well with my soul. I'll trust you with this. Boaz says, look, if, if he wants to redeem you, if that's what God thinks is best, then good, I'll, I'll be okay with it. But don't you worry. If he won't, I'll do it, baby. That's in the Hebrew, if you, if you, if you look there. <laughs> he means business. So, so we'll, we'll skip the rest of, of Ruth chapter three. You can go back and read that. I want to jump to the beginning of Ruth chapter four, because that's where Boaz springs into action, right? Because he says, I will do this the very next day, Ruth chapter four, verse one. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there, just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Why did, why did Boaz go to the town gate? Because the town gate would serve as like a town hall or like a courthouse. If you wanted to conduct a transaction, it happened at the town gate. If you, if you had a case that you needed to hear tried so there would be justice, you would do it at the town gate. It's the place where the elders would gather. It's the place where witnesses would be. It was the place where you would make something official. And it says there that the guardian redeemer he had mentioned showed up. This is the guy who's a closer relative to Naomi and Elimelech. He would have been the first in line to purchase the property and be the guardian redeemer. So watch what happens next. Ruth chapter four, verse two. Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. And then he said to the guardian redeemer, 
Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring this matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. End of quotation. Next quotation. I will redeem it, he said. Boom, 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 boom. Right? Because Boaz says, look, man, you, you come first. So if you want the property, um, you can have it. And then he holds his breath. And the guy says, yeah, I'll redeem it. Do you know why he said that? Because if he buys that property, it builds up his portfolio. It helps him to be more wealthy. It gives him more land. It gives him more status. It gives him the ability to create more wealth. And he says, man, this is a great deal. I'm glad I'm first in line. Yeah, I, I can add to my wealth and my prestige. I'll do that. I'll, I'll, I'll buy the property that Naomi is selling. Verse five, then Boaz said, and um, on, the, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. That's that Levirate marriage there, right? Well, there's a little twist to the story that Boaz didn't mention at first to the guardian redeemer. Watch what he says in verse eight, or excuse me, verse six. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. Isn't that an interesting phrase? You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. He goes, oh, I, I didn't realize this was a package deal. <laughs> I thought I was just getting the land. I didn't know that Moabite lady came with it. So, so look, I'm not going to do that because I might endanger my own estate. See, I already have my own property. In fact, he was probably a wealthy guy if he was able to buy the land kind of without even thinking that quickly. He says, yeah, I'll do it. So he probably had his own wealth, maybe even his own family and his wife. And if he brought in another wife, if he had another child, he might endanger his own inheritance for his kids. That this might put him at jeopardy. It might put part of his legacy at jeopardy. It might put part of his, 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 his story and his property at jeopardy. And he says, you know what? The other thing I didn't think about, how, how much do Naomi and Ruth eat? Because that's another mouth I got to feed. He's like, you know what? I, I don't want to take the personal risk. I don't want to pay the cost. So I'm, I'm not going to do it. I don't want to endanger what I have. You do it. Verse 7. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. Aren't you glad we just signed transactions now? <laughs> right, I'll sign a contract. I'm not interested in even touching your shoe. Can I get an amen? Right, so this is an interesting thing in that time. The reason the sandal gets involved, right? We saw this in Deuteronomy 25 a minute ago. Now we see it here. It's because these issues have to do with property. And there's passages in scripture where it talks about how God will give you every place your foot shall step. Have you ever heard any of those? That it's where you place your feet. And so the, the transactions regarding property were tied to the feet, and that's why the sandal is involved. Isn't that interesting? Verse eight. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. I'm out. You're next, Boaz. Verse nine. 
Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Malan. And I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malan's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown, today you are witnesses. End of story. Boaz says, it's official. I am the guardian redeemer. Why does that matter? Look, as, as, we, uh, as we move past this story a little bit, let me give you three observations on Boaz. Three things that I hope you'll see quickly today, that as you look at your life and I look at my own, there's some things here that we can pick up and learn from. Three observations on Boaz and his person. Here's the first one. Extraordinary people do extraordinary things. Extraordinary people do extraordinary things. Look, some of you may look at your life and go, look, Chad, I'm not extraordinary. I'm anything but extraordinary. I'm just plain old ordinary. And we think we're not extraordinary people because our names don't show up on the, on the front page every day. Or we, we say, I've never done anything great where people know all about me. But the truth is, God says, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that we are God's workmanship. That means that we are his masterpiece, that he's created us with things that he has in mind for us to do. And he doesn't want us to live a life that's mediocre. He wants us to live life to the full. You've heard that, right? And as a result of that, he doesn't want us to be ordinary people. As followers of Jesus Christ, he's called us to be extraordinary. Now, I don't know in what place that is in your life, but somewhere, somehow, as a spouse, as a parent, as an employee, as a friend, maybe as someone who shares your faith with others in a way that they come to know Christ and his freedom and his grace and his salvation, God has called you not to be ordinary, but to be extraordinary. No matter your age, no matter the season of life that you're in, God, I believe, has put an extraordinary purpose on your life. We're not ordinary. We're his masterpiece. But what does that mean? One of the things that you see in this story, I think it's an underlying theme, is that extraordinary people do extraordinary things. You know what Boaz did? Boaz did. He paid the price. He was willing to, to sacrifice the cost of what it would be to redeem Ruth, and the other guy wasn't. That unnamed guy, that ordinary guy, he wouldn't pay the price. And are we talking about him today? <laughs> Not really. It's Boaz we're talking about. The same story's true if you go back to chapter one and you look at Ruth. What Orpah did was ordinary. When her mother-in-law said, go back home, find another husband, she said, that's the right thing, it makes sense, I'll do that. Do we call this the book of Orpah, yes or no? <laughs> we call it the book of Ruth, why? Because Ruth was an extraordinary person who did extraordinary things. This is a powerful truth for us to figure out. If you want to accomplish something, do something, be used by God in your life, then sometimes you have to go beyond what is typical. To have what others do not have, you must do what others will not do. To have what others do not have, sometimes you have to do what others will not do. Look, I'm not talking just about finances. I'm not talking about houses and cars and cash. I'm talking about peace and happiness and joy and purpose and a strong family and a secure future and a purpose and a hope in your life. Oftentimes, to have what others do not have may mean you have to take some steps to do what others will not do. I was talking with a friend this week, and he said that, that he has people come up to him, and he says, you know, I'd like to be as secure in life as you are. 
And he says, I often say to them, are you willing to pay the price that I paid to get this security? To have what others do not have, you have to do what others will not do. It requires taking a step that some people may not be willing to take. That's what Ruth did. That's what Boaz did. Truthfully, this is a story of extraordinary people. And what happens is so many times we're posers and phonies instead of extraordinary. We want others to think we're something that we're not. One of the things that's kind of a rage in our society right now is, is, is cryptocurrency, kind of digital money. And there was a big convention for all those that are kind of in that world that happened in New York City this, this last month. And while they were there, people were walking up to the hotel, and there's kind of this symbol within that world of the Lamborghini, you know, the, the sports car, the Lamborghini? Kind of meaning if you have one of those that you've arrived. And when people walked up, there were three Lamborghinis just parked right in front of this hotel. So the people would walk in and go, man, there's people here who have arrived. They were excited. They were stoked about it. They were like, this is what I want. This is what I'm working for. Only to find out that all three of those Lamborghinis had been rented. <laughs> it was a publicity stunt. It looked real, but it wasn't. There's so many things we chase after that look real, but they're not. Here's what Paul says to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. I'm not a fake. I'm not a phony. I don't rent my Lamborghini. No, I strike a blow to my body, and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others... I myself will not be disqualified from the prize. Paul's writing here to say that if you want to live an extraordinary life for God, it's going to take effort. Times I'll hear people say to me, you know, I just want to live a life where I stand out from the crowd. Well, just know this, to stand out from the crowd, you must step out from the crowd. You have to live in a way that it's extraordinary. You have to strive to know God. You've got to love your spouse. You've got to actually do your homework. I tell some of you that, that maybe kind of in the front years or decision-making years of your life, do what you can today so that you'll be prepared for tomorrow. For all of us, we have a tendency sometimes to want to take the easiest route, and you know that the easiest route is not always the best route. Look, extraordinary people live extraordinary lives, which dovetails right into the second truth or observation that I see here about Boaz. Number two, that we live faithfully today in expectation of God's faithfulness tomorrow. I want to challenge you to live faithfully today in expectation of God's faithfulness tomorrow. Go back to Ruth chapter one. You know what Naomi has at the beginning of Ruth chapter one? Nothing but loss. Like she loses everything, her home, her husband, her sons, everything that mattered to her it's gone. And how about Ruth herself? Now she's with Naomi, the widow, and she's in a land where she's not from. Her prospects of a future are slim to none. This is a desperate situation. They don't have much here. You have Boaz, who we know so little about, but we don't know what his story is. We just know that he made himself very vulnerable here. This whole story is a setup for heartbreak until you get to the end and you watch that these are people who lived faithfully today because they believed that God would be faithful in the future. Does that make sense? 
Look, that's the way that we're to live our lives. And that's difficult because sometimes that means that I may be in a place where I don't understand things, where I can't see how it's gonna work out, and I'm not even sure if God is there. And I have to say, God, I trust you to be faithful in the future, so I will be faithful right now. In in verse 10 of, of Ruth chapter four, Boaz says, you are witnesses. I make this commitment. Watch what happens in verse 11. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be, I like this line, and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. That's a cool blessing that's pronounced on Boaz. Now, if you're not familiar with with the beginning of the Old Testament, um, there's, there's a lot of names there that don't mean a whole lot to us. But for those people in that day and time, when they pronounced those names, they were pronouncing a blessing. They were saying, Boaz, may God bless you and prosper you. May he give you hope. May he give you a legacy. May he give you fame. It's a powerful moment where Boaz realizes that because he was faithful, God would be faithful to him in the future. Some of you are scrambling or struggling or wondering what's around the next bend for me. Can I encourage you with this? Doing the right things produces the right things. Look, if you want to have God's favor and his blessing in your life, even in the seasons where it doesn't make sense what's happening for you, I challenge you, do the right things because they produce the right things. Follow God's word, work hard, trust God, spend time with people who are healthy for you in your life. Dr. Henry Cloud uses, when when he's talking with people about making decisions, he uses the analogy, he challenges them to play the movie. Like imagine that the place where you're at in your life right now is a scene in a movie. And think about how you want that movie to end. Do you want it to be a tragedy? Do you want it to be a a victory at the end? Do you want it to have a happy ending? Think about how you want this movie of your life to end, and then think about the scene that you're in right now, and what decision do you have to make in this scene, and then in the next scene, and then in the next scene, so that when this movie is done, it'll have a happy ending. Does that make sense? See, if you'll do the right things, play the movie out, if you'll do the right things, it produces the right things in your life. So watch what happens next in the story. Ruth chapter four, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And the women said to Naomi, we're going to unpack this this passage next week, but look at this. The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become, here's this word again, famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him, watch this, Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. You ever heard of David? Oh, light bulb. We're reading this story for a reason. This isn't just a love story. This is a background story. This is telling us how this all happened. 
Look, understand what you see happening here. Naomi lost everything. Ruth was taken from her home. Boaz took a risk and was vulnerable, and God knew all along what he was doing. It looks hopeless in Ruth chapter one, and everything changes by Ruth chapter four. Here's the reason why. God always has a plan to redeem even when we cannot yet see it. Look, know this, and I love it that the book of Ruth does not hit you over the head with theology. Do you know what this is? It's a story of a family. Anybody ever been in a family? It's a love story. Anybody like a love story? And it's a love story about a family where God says, even when things look desperate, I'm behind the scenes. I'm working this all out. I have a plan to redeem. You just can't see it yet. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 18. The path of the righteous is like the morning sun shining ever brighter till the full light of day. So, so you might be on a path right now, righteous person, where you say, I don't have a whole lot of light. I'm not exactly sure where to go. But trust this, that the path of the righteous is like that first light of dawn that shines ever brighter with each step you take. God can give you a little more light. He's going to help you to see that next step. Does that make sense? Look, God has a plan to redeem even when you cannot see it. So my word to you would be this, stay faithful. Trust him. Man, it's so easy in those dark times to think that God's not there or God doesn't care or there is no hope or to give up. And I want to tell you, this book of Ruth is a story that says to you, stay faithful. Men, for some of us, this this is a a clear wake-up call for us. We observe the life of Boaz, and I would challenge you, be a Boaz. Guys, honor and respect women. Work hard. Be faithful and a good steward of what you have. Approach life with courage. Don't be afraid to do the difficult things, to have a tough conversation, to make choices that might cost you something, but you know will matter. Guys, be a Boaz. And ladies, can I encourage you? Look, look, some of you that are single, can I just challenge you with this? Wait for Boaz. Don't settle for anything less than someone who will treat you respect and who will pay the price for you. Don't take the easy way out. And if you're waiting in the meantime, make yourself a Ruth. Be a person of commitment and initiative, of humility and vulnerability and love and pray for God to send that Boaz. And some of you are saying, I'm not single, I'm married, and my husband is no Boaz. (laughs) There's a good chance he's looking at you going, you ain't no Ruth either, lady, right? (laughs) Right? So what do you do? Look, and ladies, this is my encouragement. If your husband is no Boaz, you make sure you're a Ruth and you do everything you can to help him be the Boaz you want him to be. It's a powerful truth that's here. And here's something I find interesting. In verse 11 and verse 14, you know what word they use? This, this is interesting. It's really only used in this way five times in the Old Testament. It says, may you be famous. It's the very same word, actually, that you see so many times when it says that someone's name is this. In fact, when you go back to uh, chapter one of Ruth, where it says, and his name was Elimelech, it's the same word. But in this place, what it means is, may you be in a place where people remember your name, where, where they know who you are, where you have a legacy, not for your own sake, but for God's sake, that when people hear your name, they'll say, that's what God did through them. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Yes, Chad, that's a beautiful picture. You know why I say that? 
Because we read all about Boaz in Ruth chapter four. We also read about the other guy who was a closer guardian redeemer whose name was, help me, what was his name? Unnamed Unnamed dude, right? Why? That's deliberate. It's not because the author of Ruth didn't know his name. It's because his name didn't matter. Because he didn't take the step. He didn't make the choice. He didn't pay the price. And what Boaz did It affected history. Look, you got got to read this book through the lens of David's kingdom. We know that the book of Ruth happened during the time of the judges. But because of what we read in in verse 7 a few minutes ago about how it said they used to hand out sandals, but they don't anymore. Do you remember that? They used to do that. That means time has passed. So this is a historical story that is being recounted because the author of the book of Ruth wants people to know something. During the time, around or during the reign of King David in Israel, and they're saying, look, this dude Boaz had a child by Ruth whose name was Obed, and Obed had a child whose name was Jesse, and Jesse had a child whose name was David, and David's the dude that killed Goliath, became our king, and set our people free. Don't we like David? So we love this story. Because if you don't have Boaz, then you don't have David. And if you don't have David, we don't have the freedom that we have as a nation. Can you understand how powerfully important that was for people? Because here's what they learned through this. They saw that the very king of Israel is there for them because someone was willing to take a bold step of love. Third observation on Boaz, super quick. Love is sacrifice. At some point, if you love someone... It's more than a bumper sticker. It's more than a greeting card. It's going to cost you something. To love another person requires sacrifice. Boaz puts himself at risk. He pays the price. He had to decide what mattered, and he had to do something about it. I love the way that God lines things up. That the day that we talk about love being a sacrifice, God knew how to put his word in line with our calendar. Do you know what tomorrow is? It's Memorial Day. It's the day that we as a nation stop and remember those who were willing to pay the price. They were willing to sacrifice because they loved country and they loved freedom and they paid the price so that you and I in this country could know the freedom that could come to us. Uh, Some veterans from Calvary has set up a, a display out in our atrium. I'd encourage you, if you haven't seen it already, stop by, take a moment, and, and this, this whole time is about remembering that you would stop and remember, here's why, because love will cost you something. If you're going to love, it's going to cost you something. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And so today, with that in mind, we're going to do something. I want to invite those that are going to help us, the ushers who are going to serve, to go ahead and uh, and be released to step out to help us in this. Remember, we're looking at this through the lens of those who lived in the kingdom of and at the time of King David. Ruth chapter 4, verse 18 says, This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of... Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, Boaz, the father of Obed, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. How about those genealogies, am I right? How many of you, when you you read those in the Bible, you start to fall asleep? Anybody? 
How many of you, when you get to that in the Bible, you just skip it? Come on, raise your hand, honestly. How many of you skip it? Because it's boring. It doesn't matter. It's just all these dead people's names. We think it's not what the Jewish people thought. That, that wasn't dead people's names. That was our history. That's where we came from. That's who we belong to. In many ways, it was a legal document that reminded them of what was coming to them, of what privilege they had. So they didn't just skip over those things. Those things were hugely important because every name meant something. You see genealogies all throughout the Old Testament. You really only see two of them in the New Testament, one in the book of Luke, one in the book of Matthew. Here's the one in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1, verse 3. We'll, we'll kind of start in the same familiar place. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez, the father of Hezron. Here's those same names again, right? Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Aminadab. Aminadab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. There'll be a test next week. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. That's interesting. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was... There's our girl. One of only four ladies mentioned in the genealogy in the book of Matthew. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father, not of David, but of... King David. Oh, yeah, now it's making sense. So when they read these genealogies through the lens of David's kingdom, they said, that's where our king came from. But we're not in David's kingdom. Who's our king? <laughs> we're in Jesus' kingdom, which means when you go to the end of this genealogy, watch what you read. There's a whole lot more names, and then you get to Matthew chapter 1, verse 16. And it says, and Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who's called the Messiah sees our king. Watch this. The story of Boaz is not just an old love story from the Old Testament. It's a story that reminds us of where our king came from. Because if you don't have Boaz, you don't have David. And without David, we don't have the same story about Jesus. And that changes everything for us. Why is that? Because 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 says this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. See, Ruth's guardian redeemer was a foreshadow of our savior redeemer. The book of Ruth is not just a love story from 3,000 years ago. It's a love story today to remind you that what happened 3,000 years ago led to a man who lived 2,000 years ago and died for you so you could know freedom in 2018. That's a powerful thing. Galatians chapter four, verse four. But when the set time had fully come, because God has a perfect plan, Right? God sent his son born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship because you are his sons. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave but God's child, and since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. Understand this. In English, when we read that, it says, Boaz says, look, I'm going to buy the land, and with that purchase of the land, I'm going to acquire Ruth the Moabite. Isn't acquire a lovely, romantic word? I'm going to buy some land and get me a girl, right? Isn't that what it sounds like? But if you really look at that word, if you watch the way it's used throughout scripture, I don't like the translation acquired. Do you know what it means? Here's what he says. I'm going to buy the land, and when I do, I'm going to buy the land, I'm going to redeem Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the foreigner. Ruth who's not like us. Ruth the outsider. I'm, I'm going to redeem her because I love her. When God sent his son, Jesus, he didn't do it 
just because he didn't care for us or because he was trying to get something from us. He did it because he loved us. And it says in scripture that he sent his son Jesus. He died for us to redeem us, to save our lives. I read a story about a dad named David Saunders who lives not too far away from here in Michigan, a little daughter named Danielle. One day, Danielle was getting off the school bus, and David was out there to meet her. He actually kind of crossed over the street, and he went, we went out to meet her at the bus, and he was walking her back over to the house, and, and there was a pickup truck that was parked right behind the bus, and they were standing there in the driveway. You know, a little girl wants to watch the bus go away, and as they're standing there, out of his corner of his eye, David Saunders looks over and sees that there's a 16-year-old in the car that's just speeding down the road, realizes that that pickup truck is behind that bus too late, and there's no way that kid's going to be able to stop. So what the 16-year-old does out of instinct is he just swerves. But when he swerves, he turns and he's heading right towards David Saunders and his daughter Danielle standing in their driveway. With quick reflexes, Saunders grabs his daughter and he throws her into the yard just as that truck comes and hits him. And he's pronounced dead on the scene. Here's what the sheriff said of that. It was a heroic act by a father to save his child. He did everything he could, and in the process, he lost his own life. It's a tragic story, and it reminds me of John 3.16, of how God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. The book of Ruth's not just a cool story. It's our love story. It's a reminder that our God sent his son to die for us so that we could know him through his love that is sacrifice. And that's where we're redeemed. We're bought back. We're provided for. We're saved. We're set free. There's hope. There's freedom. There's grace. All because Jesus was willing to go to the cross and pay the price that his love allowed him to sacrifice so that we could know him. Aren't you thankful for that? So I'm going to invite the ushers to come at this time, and, and we're going to prepare for a time to go to the Lord's table today and share in communion. But if you're here and you, you don't know what this is about, we believe that Scripture teaches us that Jesus, who had never sinned, went to the cross and died. When he died, he, it, it was like he paid the price for the sins that you and I have committed. You know those things that kind of hang over your head, those things that bother you, that plague you. Well, there's forgiveness and there's grace available for those things that God is there to offer to us and that comes to us through the price that Jesus paid, that forgiveness. So he redeemed us when he died on the cross. And Jesus said that there's times when we're to come back and we're to remember what he did. So in just a moment, the ushers will hand out bread. You hold on to that until we, we've all got it and then we'll share in it together where in this room or over an auditorium too, hold on to that bread. It symbolizes the broken body of Jesus Christ, how he died for us. And then the cup is, is a symbol of his shed blood. How through his blood, there's life and there's hope and there's freedom and there's healing and there's forgiveness. And Paul tells us that when we come to the Lord's table, we're to, we're to do some time for examination. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 27 says, So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment 
on themselves. So if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then we invite you to join with us in this time of communion. But if you're here today and you're not so sure that things are right between you and God, I know no better moment than right now for you to stop and say, Jesus, I need you. I need you as my Savior, the one who forgives me. And I need you as my Lord, the one who leads and gives purpose to my life. And with that simple prayer, if you, if you mean it from your heart, he can change your life as you make him your Savior and your Lord. So in these next few moments, as the elements are distributed, would you examine your own heart? Thank God for his grace. Thank God for his love. Thank him for what he does through his love and sacrifice in our lives. And let's prepare ourselves as we come to the Lord's table. Ushers, you may serve. through the shadows. 
passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you for the bread. Lord, that you sacrificed in a way that we did not deserve so we could know your love and your grace. Lord, may we never take your love for granted. Today, we remember your sacrifice as we share in the bread together. In Jesus' name, let's share in the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Father, thank you for the blood. Lord, thank you that, Jesus, because of your shed blood, I can know forgiveness. That my life can have meaning. That my body can be healed. That I can have hope because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you for it, and we remember as we share in the cup together. In Jesus' name, let's share in the cup. I invite you to stand with me if you would, please. And uh, if you're comfortable, would you just lift your hands to heaven? And just even now, just begin to thank him. Maybe even with your own mouth, just begin to say, God, I thank you for your grace. God, I thank you for your forgiveness. Lord, I thank you for your peace. Lord, I thank you for your hope. Lord, I thank you for your mercy. Hallelujah, God. We praise you. Hallelujah.
our voice and the reason we lift our hands is because of your love that sacrificed for us, that you loved us enough to redeem us. So now this week, may we live extraordinary lives faithfully serving you because of all that you've done for us. God, as we go from here, would you go with us? Send us out with your special favor, with your wonderful peace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, God bless you. Thanks for being here. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next Sunday.